You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. This morning, I have the privilege of introducing our guest speaker. Um, He's become a really good friend to the Mission Church. We've had the privilege of having him here several times. Uh, And that is Pastor John Wang, one of the teaching pastors at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And here is what I love about John. First and foremost, John does not take himself too seriously. You can imagine being an Asian American, but having a name like John Wang. And I love that he never takes himself too seriously about that. I think, I think you told me to say uh, that you're really Mexican. But no, you're not going to fool anyone with the last name Wang. It's just not, not going to happen. Um, John has an incredible passion for teaching God's word. And he's incredibly accurate when it comes to his study. And I had the opportunity to listen to the first service this morning. And the way that John connects is just something that God has empowered him with. And so really encouraged to uh, have you hear his message this morning. Uh, John's been both a missionary and a worship leader on three different continents. He's been teaching at Calvary Costa Mesa for quite a while, and he especially works with the millennial generation specific to the young adults, and has just been pouring in the passion of the Lord to that group. And I think is taking a, a trip to Israel in May with that young adults group, which I'm trying to, you know, I got, I got room, right? There's a spot for me, hopefully. All of you are like, that guy's a young adult. Yeah, I'm only in my 30s. It's the no hair thing. So, hey, uh, would you give a warm Mission Church welcome to Pastor John Wang this morning? Thanks, Terry. So I got to say, during first service, the thing that terrified me the most was the announcement and then having to make that first step. Man, during, during the songs, I, I just kept thinking, man, I have not been stretching. I don't know if I'm limber enough. And, uh, and you only get heavier as you get older. And I'm thinking, are my jeans too tight? And so I'm just glad I made it up the first service and the second service. So that is a huge accomplishment. So I know something special is about to happen today. All right. So it's great to be here with all of you again. And And as JC said, man, what a joy to be a part of the Mission family this morning. And so I'm just thankful to see all of you here. And I'll tell you, don't take this for granted. You know, I've, I've had conversations with pastors that they are still, because of lack of facility, they have been online for months. And the fact that you guys have this piece of property to set up a tent like this and and I know that, you know, the, the heat and all that could be a bit uncomfortable, but praise the Lord for a tent, praise the Lord for the ocean breeze, and praise the Lord that you guys could sing and have a Bible study. So, so glad that you guys are all out. Well, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Genesis, and if you don't have a Bible, why don't you raise your hand? We want to get a Bible into your hand, but Genesis, the first book of the Bible, chapter 3, so that should be easy to find this morning, Genesis chapter 3, and what I want to do today is I want to read just one verse 
from Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 15. And then after we read, we're going to pray. And then I'd like to share with you a message that I've entitled the Proto-Evangelium. And I know that sounds like a scary title up front, but we'll unpack that so that you'll understand what I mean by it. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I just again want to thank you for this church family. I want to thank you for the good work that you're doing here. And and Lord, what an amazing opportunity you've opened up for this church to be able to not only gather publicly, but to gather publicly here where, where people are coming and going and cars are stopping at a light and people are walking and and even just a, a brief moment, even a few seconds of hearing the gospel, we know that lives can be changed forever. And so we pray that not only would people that don't know Jesus hear the good news about Him, but Lord, I pray for all of us as we're reminded again of the good news of Jesus, that You would bring the change, the, the transformation that we all need. And Lord, we also just want to pray, Lord, wherever those sirens are going to, Lord, we pray that you would be with those first responders. And we pray, Lord, that you would be with the people's lives that needed to make that 911 call. And so for all of us today, we just ask that you'd be honored and glorified in our lives as you continue to transform us more into the likeness of Jesus and you deepen our love for you today. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I've entitled our message today, The Proto-Evangelium. Now, hearing a word like that, I think it's safe to assume that the majority, if not all of us, the first question that came to our mind was, what is that? What does Proto-Evangelium mean? And I'm so glad you asked that question, because I'm really excited to tell you. Well, the word Proto-Evangelium is a compound of two Greek words. The first word is protos, it means first. And then the second word is the evangelion, which means gospel. So proto-evangelion means the first gospel. And this is the title that has traditionally been used for Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. And the reason why is because Genesis 3.15 is the first promise of Jesus the Messiah that appears in the Bible. What we have here is the first announcement of the gospel. And when we talk about the gospel, the good news, listen, the gospel is about Christ. And Christ is the gospel. But I also want you to see here that this good news, this gospel, I want you to see where we find it. Look at where it shows up. The good news of Jesus the Messiah is announced in the context of the dark and tragic account of the fall of humanity. That is what Genesis chapter 3 is all about. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, it is set like a jewel in the context of a very dark and tragic scene. Sin entered the world. 
And God's human image bearers became corrupted and ruined and spiritually dead. And so when we look at Genesis 3.15 today, I want you to see it as like showcasing a priceless and precision cut diamond on a dark velvet backdrop. We're going to see the gospel of Christ. Not in the context of a clean and pristine environment. Sometimes we want to just put the gospel there, right? It's like we're going to keep the gospel in a clean and pristine church service. But that's not where we see the gospel for the first time. It happens in the context of mess, it happens in the context of tragedy, it happens in the context of darkness. The most tragic event in human history, the fall of humanity. So let's set the stage here in Genesis chapter 3. This is the backstory for verse 15. Now you guys remember that in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2, we see creation, right? There in those first two chapters of the Bible, we see that God made the world and God made humans. And the world that God made was good. And so when you read Genesis chapter 1, we see that in six days, God made the light and the sky and the sun and the moon and the stars. He made land and sea and plant life. He made the sky creatures and the water creatures and the land creatures. And in these days of creation, it also includes the making of a place called Eden. Eden. The name Eden means delight. It means pleasure. It means abundance. And listen, Eden was a real place existing in a real world. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2 verses 8 and 9, we see a description of this real place called Eden. We read, now the Lord God had planted a garden. The new English translation translates it as an orchard in the east in Eden. And verse 9, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were well-pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this sets the stage for where the story of Genesis 3 happens. So God spoke the world into existence, and the world was good. But not only do we see that God made the world, but God also made humans. He made humans male and female. And here's what the Bible tells us about those first humans, that God made man and woman in His own image, in His own likeness. Now that's a big deal. Tremper Longman III, he wrote this, quote, Human beings reflect God's glory in a way that no other part of God's creation does. Isn't that radical? You know, the Bible talks about how the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky sets forth, it displays His handiwork. But do you understand that you display more glory than that? There is nothing in this created world that shows off God's glory like you do. There's nothing in this created universe that shows off God's glory like I do. We were made uniquely by God. Now, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? 
Well, there are four words I want you to think about when you think about being made in the image of God. And those words are resemble, reflect, represent, and relationship. Guys, being made in God's image means that humans resemble God. We resemble Him. Like God, we are rational. That's why as you're listening to this message, you're able to hear what I'm saying. You're able to take the words that I'm speaking and you're able to process them and think about them. And they mean something to you. We resemble Him in that we are rational. We resemble Him in that we are moral. Even though morality has been tweaked in our culture and society, people still are able to gauge between what's right and wrong. And being made in the image of God and resembling Him means that we're also emotional beings. Guys, we experience sadness. We experience happiness. We've got highs. We've got lows. Now, obviously, our emotional spectrum is all affected by the fall of humanity, but at least we can emote. All of that is that we resemble the God who made us. Secondly, being made in the image of God means that we reflect Him. John Calvin, born in 1509, went to heaven in 1564. He said, I love this quote, he said, To image God means to reflect God like a mirror. To image God means to reflect God like a mirror. And this is the reason why I love the topic of praise and worship. Think about it. You and I are a mirror, and our purpose is to reflect back to God the truth of who He is. Think about the mirror that's in our homes. Now, I'm sure I can say with confidence that most of us, if not all of us, at one point or another today, before coming to church, we looked into a mirror at our home. We looked at our reflection, we saw what was right, we saw what was wrong, and we made the adjustments that needed to happen. But, looking around, I think I can safely say that nobody looked at their mirror and said, you are the most amazing mirror in the world. In fact, you're so amazing, I just want to rip you off my bathroom wall, and I want to bring you to church so I can show you off, right? No, we didn't even think about the mirror because all we cared about was the reflection. Guys, you and I are mirrors that reflect back to God the truth of who He is. In worship, that's what happens. It's reflection. So imagine, imagine God looking into your life like a mirror and God says, I am holy. So how do we respond like mirrors? God, you are holy. God says, I am gracious. We say, God, you are gracious. Listen, the glory of the mirror is not the mirror. The glory of the mirror is the reflection in the mirror. But there are times we start focusing on the mirror, right? When there's a smudge on it. When the mirror is dirty, then all of a sudden the attention is drawn away from the person looking into it, and now the focus is all on the mirror. And guys, that's what sin did. We were made to reflect back to God the truth of who He is, but sin distorted and mangled everything, and God's glory was then replaced for self-glory, and now we're walking around like mirrors saying, don't look at God, look at me. 
But that was never God's intent. That's why worship is a big deal. This morning, as we were singing to God, we were like mirrors functioning properly, reflecting back to God the truth of who He is. Isn't that amazing? But also, the word represent. The Bible tells us that humans were intended to be God's representative rulers on earth. As God made the world, He put humans on planet earth to represent Him. And He commanded the first humans to fill and govern the earth. We see that in Genesis 1.28. And then the fourth word that describes why we were made in the image of God, it's relationship. Because you understand that being made in God's image, we were created to have relationship with God vertically and relationship with one another horizontally. And guys, this is only true because God is triune. As you understand that if God was not one God in three persons, we could not make the statement, God is love. Now, we could probably say God is loving, depending upon how He proves Himself in the Bible, but if God was just one singular God with no trinity, then He would have created humanity because there was a sense of lack and need in Him. Because He needed someone to love, and He needed someone to love Him back. And sadly, that's the way some people think is the reason why God made humans. No, God didn't need anybody. He didn't need anything. Because God is love, and the one God is triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Love was always there. That's why no other religion in the world can talk about God is love. They might say that their God is loving, but no other religion in the world, only Christianity that is Trinitarian, can say God is love. And that means the reason why He created people? It wasn't because He was in need of anything. It's because being love, He wants to love. And the more things He can love, the greater joy we see. And so He made man to be the object of His love. And then He created man with the capacity to not only love like God loves, but listen to also be loved. And guys, I know that in church we hear a lot about the importance of loving one another, but sometimes we just need to be reminded that God also wants each of us to just sit back and be loved. Because our capacity to love others flows out of that, not the other way around. The Bible says we love because He first loved us. So this morning, if you feel like there's a lack of love, maybe for your spouse or your kids or your parents or the people around you, hey, the best thing to do is to not try to manufacture more love in you. The best thing is to get away and say, Jesus, will you just love on me right now? I'm just going to let you love on me right now so that more of your love can spill out of my life to the people around me. And so we see that God made humans to love Him vertically, but also to love one another horizontally. And that's why God created this thing called marriage. And we see that in Genesis 2. As the first humans are drinking in of God's love, now they have a place to express it practically. Their spouses. And so God made the first man and the first woman with innocence. Their relationship with God and each other was clean and clear. 
It was free of impurity. It was free of immorality. And that's why Genesis 2.25 says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now we come to Genesis chapter 3. And Genesis 3 takes us back to the when and where sin entered the world. Back to the when and where humans and the rest of creation fell into the bondage of sin and death. Back to the when and where God announced the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, for the first time. And guys, this is important. This is a key moment in the history of redemption, or literally the His story of redemption. So we're going to take some time just to walk through Genesis 3 and to see how the gospel shines in it. So in verses 1 through 24, we begin with the fall of humanity. We read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. So now we're introduced to one of the characters in this chapter. He's introduced as the serpent. Now we know from Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 that the serpent is Satan. The name Satan means adversary, enemy. We know he's called the devil. That means a slanderer. But the Bible also refers to him as the enemy, the evil one, and the father of lies and a murder. And the one thing we need to know about the devil is that he hates God. And because Satan hates God, listen, he hates humans. Why? Because humans are the image bearers of God. And next, we see concerning the serpent that he was more crafty. You know, the Hebrew word translated crafty, in the New English translation, it's translated as shrewd. In the New King James, it's translated as cunning, but it means to be clever. It means to be tricky, and the focus is on evil treachery, but this word crafty means something more than just evil treachery. Here's the thing that's astounding. This Hebrew word also pertains to wisdom. Wisdom. Now, we generally think of wisdom as a positive, not a negative, right? But guys, here's the thing that's scary about the devil. Satan appears wise. And his words appear to be full of wisdom. And guys, this is appealing to people who want to be wise and full of wisdom. Isn't that radical? For people that want to be wise and full of wisdom, Satan comes in a way where he appears to have all the wisdom that fallen humans would, could ever need or want. And when Satan begins to speak his wisdom, he wants to steer people away from God and the path of God's wisdom, and he wants to convince people to be wise in their own eyes. Because isn't that the wisdom of the day? The wisdom of the day is whatever makes me happy. Whatever, tells, whatever my heart tells me is right. I'll tell you, one of the greatest deceptive lies of the devil who tries to appear as wisdom is when he whispers into your ears, 
Hey, let your heart guide you. Just whatever is in your heart, do that. The Bible says our hearts are wicked. The Bible says our hearts are deceitful. Guys, Satan's lies, they appear and they sound wise. And this is what makes it so dangerous. This is what makes it so deceptive. And so here the serpent's agenda was to deceive and lead astray God's image bearers into sin and away from God. And so again, in verses 1 through 3, we read, He said to the woman, Did God really say? Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Oh, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. So the serpent is striking. And his first attack is against the reliability and the authority of God's Word. He posed the question, did God really say? Listen, this is usually Satan's first mode of attack. He knows that if he can derail a person's belief in the reliability and the authority of God's Word, then he can easily entice and lead him or her away from trusting God. And I'll tell you what, Satan is still asking that question, did God really say? Guys, we hear it in our schools. We hear it on the internet. We hear it from media. And man, we even hear it in churches. And the scariest place, we also hear it in our heads. And I got to be honest with you, I've been, I've been a Christian for over 40 years now. And there are still moments where I'll read the Bible and I can still See how Satan is trying to get into my thoughts as I'm reading scriptures that I have affirmed and preached for decades. And then I'm reading those same verses again. And I'm like, man, did I really read that right? Am I really understanding this right? And then all of a sudden you just start second guessing things that you're reading in the Bible. Guys, please don't go into hiding when you start having those kinds of thoughts. Guys, God doesn't want us to go into hiding with those kinds of thoughts. He wants us to bring those thoughts into the light. Because that's where those doubts can be dealt with. I've met too many Christians, they started feeling guilty and full of shame that they were having doubts about the Bible and about what they really believe as Christians, that they try to hide those thoughts and those doubts never get resolved. You know, one of the things that I encourage all of our young people to do at our young adult study is come with your doubts. Let's go grab coffee or tea or whatever it is that you drink, electrolytes, and let's talk it out. God's not afraid of our doubts. In fact, God's the one who said, come, let's reason together. And maybe that's a word for some of us here today. But just because we're Christians doesn't mean that Satan's not going to try to get a wedge into our thoughts to say, did God really say? But at those moments, what we have to do is fall back on what we are confident in, what we do know, and that is that God's Word is truth. 
John 17, 17 tells us that. And it is the means by which we can test and discern what is true and what is a lie. Between what is real and what is false. And I want you to see how Satan phrased the question, Did God really say? And then notice the follow-up. You must not eat from any tree in the garden. Not only is he wanting to cast doubt, but now when you're in a vulnerable spot, now he begins to misquote. Because when you're doubting and you're unsure, then that begins to loosen the soil for the devil to now start misquoting God's word. And here he's misquoting God's instruction. He's misleading this first human away from what God really said. He didn't say that you couldn't eat from any of the trees of the garden. Just one. And guys, this is a common technique among false teachers. They confuse people in regards to what God really and clearly said in His Word. And that's why I want to challenge you, read the Bible. And don't just make it a point to go through the Bible, but take your time so that the Bible would get through you. You know, when people ask me, John, do you think that reading through the Bible in a year is a good plan? I say for some people, sometimes. Because sometimes if you're trying to read through the Bible in a year, it's like now it just feels like a homework assignment, right? And you're trying to power through that Bible reading and you have no idea what you're reading. I generally say, hey, if you're not reading the Bible, start with 555. What I mean by 555 is why don't you start by reading five minutes from the Bible and then move into five minutes of prayer and then move into five minutes of just writing down thoughts that God was speaking to you that day. Now people might say, well, five minutes, that really isn't a lot of Bible reading. But I'll tell you what, give me five minutes over no minutes. Fifteen minutes a day. What a great way to start. This is one way to safeguard ourselves from the devil. But then notice what it goes on to say in verses 4 through 5. It says, You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan first attacked the reliability and the authority of God's word, but now notice he attacks the character and motive of God. Notice he says, You won't certainly die dot, 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 and God knows that, dot, dot, dot. Guys, you see that Satan wants Eve to believe that God is not telling her the complete truth. Satan wants Eve to believe that God wants to keep something good from her and he wants to keep something good all for himself. That he doesn't really care about humans. And how many times has Satan thrown that lie at us, especially when things of disappointment hit the fan? Man, we could sing songs like, God, you are amazing, I trust you, I love you, and then all of a sudden you get a phone call that a family member has been diagnosed with cancer, or you lost your 401k, 
Or everything that is bound to this temporal, momentary world isn't going your way. And then all of a sudden, we start blaming God for what? You're not good. You don't care about us. You're not giving me everything I think I deserve. I, I deserve. And you're holding good back from me. That's exactly what Satan wants you to say. That's exactly what Satan wants you to do. He wants you to prejudge God before the story's over. Guys, we know at the end of the chapter, God's going to reconcile and renew all things, but before the chapter even gets here, before the story's even over, we're already prejudging God and saying, you don't love me, you don't care about me, I gave you all of this, and you're in return giving me nothing, and all of a sudden we realize Christianity is just, we're a bunch of mercenaries, not worshipers. Guys, Satan wants Eve to doubt God. And Satan wants Eve to not trust God. And do you see how Satan here, he's tempting God's image bearers with what? The promise that they would become like God. On paper, when you read it, you're thinking, well, that just kind of seems stupid, right? I mean, these guys are the image bearers of God. And Satan is saying, hey, buy into my life so you can look like God. But that's what sin does. Sin throws common sense out the window. How often during times of temptations, you give into things that you know that if you were in your right state of mind that you would never get into, but then after the damage is done, what's one of the first things we say? How could I have been so stupid? That's what sin does. Rationale, common sense goes out the window. I mean, think about Satan. Before he fell, he was a beautiful cherub who existed to carry God's throne. But he didn't want to carry it. He wanted to sit on it. And so he rebelled against God. Isaiah 14 tells us that. And he is a fallen and a condemned spiritual being. And so you know what he does now? He tempts others to follow him in his rebellion against God. Especially God's image bearers. Because for Satan, he can't think of a better insult than for people who bear God's image to say to their creator, I hate you. God made humans in his likeness to reflect his glory. And Satan wants God's image bearers to replace God's glory with self-glory. So verse 6, And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Man, heartbreaking. Instead of trusting God... Eve made her own conclusions, her own decision about God, what God told her and her husband not to do. Guys, that again is what Satan wants to do in your life. He doesn't want you to trust God. He wants you to reach your own conclusions. Hey, why don't you do your own research? Why don't you do your own investigations? Why don't you come up to your own safe conclusions? 
Hey, don't listen to what God said. You reach your own conclusions and you act on that. But guys, here's the deal. We can't trust ourselves. That's why even as Christians, we need people around us, right? I need people around me. I don't trust myself. Even my own conclusions. I need to have people that I can talk stuff out with and to say, hey, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm processing. Here's how I'm concluded. Can you... Am I, am I in the right here or am I just being thick-headed here? And Satan is saying, don't listen to anyone else. Just do your own thing. And here we begin to see that Eve stops trusting God and she starts trusting herself and her love for God was exchanged for her lust to satisfy her own desires. And so we read, the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food. Look, she's making her own conclusion instead of trusting God. And 1 John 2.16 says that's the lust of the flesh. The fruit of the tree was pleasing to the eye. Again, her own conclusion, not trusting God. This was her method of science. 1 John 2.16 says that's the lust of the eyes. And then the fruit of the tree was also desirable for gaining wisdom. 1 John 2.16 says that's the pride of life. The outcome, she sinned against God. And as a result, she sinned against her husband. And this was the process that the first humans experienced toward death. James 1 verses 14 and 15 says temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. And starting here in Genesis 3, we see the repeated sin pattern in the Bible. There are patterns in the Bible. And I encourage you, when you're reading the Bible, look for patterns. And the sin pattern is see and take. See and take. Whenever you see people disobeying God, they're following that same pattern. I see it, I take it. We see it, we take it. But the faith pattern is trust, obey. Trust, obey. And so verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And here's the tragedy, guys. Sin entered the world. In Romans 5.12, it tells us sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. Adam was the federal head. He represented all of humanity. And I know that none of us like to think of this, but the Bible says that the first humans became sinners, and that means that all their descendants are born into the world as sinners. Romans 5.18 says, yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. Romans 5.19 says, because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But you know what followed sin? Shame. Sin and shame. Shame was felt by the first two humans. Instead of going to God about their guilt and shame, these first humans, again, they took matters into their own hands because it's all about see and take. 
And so they sought to deal with their sin problems themselves, and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. These guys are doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. And guys, this act of self-cover-up, it still continues today in the form of religion. Guys, people trying to deal with their sin and guilt. People trying to deal with that shame. And guys, shame's a powerful thing, right? And shame's a powerful thing. And I'll tell you, so heartbreaking when you're talking to a junior high or high school student and they come and they're being honest about what's going on in their lives and you're wondering why do they wear, why do they wear long sleeves all the time only to lift up their long sleeves and they see all the scars of the cutting that they've been doing. The shame is so strong that for them even slicing themselves with razors brings relief from all that internal shame. Or the girl that had that one night stand and she, was go- and she goes home just feeling so dirty and ashamed that she gave her virginity away. And there she is standing in the shower just scrubbing herself trying to somehow get a sense of cl- cl- being clean. Shame is a powerful thing, guys. And that was introduced because of sin. And guys, for these two, figs, their leaves, couldn't do what they needed to happen. So in verses 8 and 9, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man. Where are you? Now we know that God didn't call because he didn't know the answer to it. It's not like God's really bad at a game of hide and go seek. But the reason why he called to man Remember, this is rebellious man who just rebelled against God. He called to him. He didn't ignore him. He called to him because he wants communion. He wants relationship. And him asking the question, where are you? Again, it's not because God didn't know where he was. He wanted Adam to see where he was. That question would have caused Adam to think, man, look at me. I'm not where I should be. Look at me. I'm not where I want to be. Look at me. I'm hiding from God. Look at me. I'm ashamed of my nakedness. Look at me. I feel guilty. I feel dirty. Maybe in hearing that question, God is asking, where are you today? And maybe some are thinking, man, where am I today? Yeah, I remember 10 years ago when it just seemed like I just loved the Lord and I just wanted to be with God's people and I, and I just wanted to serve Him. And, but man, where am I today? I, I've just gotten so distracted by my business or my, my, my family or I got distracted by my career or I got distracted by COVID-19 and I'm not reading the Bible anymore. I'm not fellowshipping with God anymore. But I'm so glad you're here today. Because if you find yourself in that spot, you're here because God asked the question, where are you? And you didn't even realize it, but God was pursuing you and He brought you here. 
And so in verses 10 through 11, he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was, check out this word, afraid. Well, that word just shows up for the first time. He's afraid because he says, I was naked, so I hid. Guys, you understand that when you're sin, things are not clean and clear. Things are not out in the open, but you live in fear. God doesn't want you living in fear. Fear is attached to doubt. Fear is attached to sin. God wants you to be out in the open so that sin can be dealt with and you don't have to relate to God on the grounds of fear anymore. And so he asked, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Again, God knew the answer to that question. But you know what God is doing? He's giving the first humans an opportunity to do what? Confess. Because with confession, sin can be dealt with. Sin has broken the relationship between God and His image bearers. Isaiah 59 two says, Your sinful acts have alienated you from your God. And yet, instead of trust, there is shame and fear. And yet God is calling out to them and He is inviting them to confession. The man said, verse 12, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? Notice now God is giving the woman an opportunity to confess. But her response, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. Now, let's look at the positive, but there's also a negative. The positive is even though these were lame confessions, at least they confessed. At least they owned up to their actions because both the man and the woman said what? I ate it. The problem with their confession is that it was a partial confession. Instead of fully owning up to their actions, what did they do? Blame shift. And guys, we need to be careful that we don't do that. Like when we are in a position where God is revealing to us, He's exposed our sin, what is it that we do? We give enough confession to make ourselves feel good about ourselves, right? Yeah, you're right. I did that. It was a stupid thing to do. If you would just shut up there, that's a great confession. But it's when you say, but, so-and-so, ugh, You just ruined a perfectly good confession. It turns into a partial confession. And when there's blame shifting like here between the first husband and the wife, sin not only broke their relationship with God, but we also see among the image bearers that it broke their relationship with other humans. And here in the context of marriage. So verses 14 through 15, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So God first speaks of the serpent and curses him. 
Then to the woman in verse 16, to the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now I want you to see the consequences of their sin. For the woman, she will continue giving birth to children, but now notice that from this point on, giving birth would be a painful process. You want to know why? As miraculous as childbearing is, women now have the massive feat of having to try to push out life while the world is pushing against life with death. The birth of every child is a war. And the moms feel it. We are, we are watching women pushing life and the fallen world is pushing against it with death. And there's pain. But not only there, but also in a broken marriage. Guys, this passage is saying that a happy and healthy relationship between a husband and wife is not impossible, but it will be difficult. And then he speaks to the man. He says to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So here we see that humanity would experience a creation that has been subjected to futility, Humans would have to continue cultivating the earth, but now they're going to do it with difficulties. That's why we need jobs. But also on this day, humanity died spiritually. And physical death followed. And we see that in Genesis chapter 5. And then we read in verses 20 through 24, Adam knew his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us. Knowing good and evil, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and Take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Guys, this banishment from Eden... It represented separation from God. Humans no longer had direct access to God. But I don't want you to see this as the end of the story. Because God, throughout the Bible, we see in the story of redemption, God is making His move back to humanity. 
You see, when man sinned against God, the distance was God's in heaven and humans are on earth. And there is a wide gap that could not be reconciled. But God wasn't content with that. And so God says, I have a plan. I will give my people this thing called the Ten Commandments. You know what the Ten Commandments did for God? Now it brought God from heaven to the top of a mountain. Mount Sinai. Now God's a little bit closer. It's like, okay, the Ten Commandments, it brings me now from the ratio of a mountaintop to people, but I'm still not content with that. So you know what God did next? He gave them the tabernacle. He gave them the tent. So now it brings God from heaven to a mountain to the ground. And so God is now eye level with people, but the problem is the distance between the Holy of Holies and those outside the tent can't be reconciled. So you know what God does? He says, I'm going to provide sacrifices. And now that brings God and people, not from the outside of the tent, now people could actually come inside the tent, but there's a veil. Now we're like one veil away from God. Throughout the Old Testament, we're just one veil away. And God's like, this still isn't the end. And then He provides Jesus, and Jesus tears that veil wide open. And now we can have a relationship with God. But notice who's making the move. God's making the move. Because He loves you. He loves me. He loves everybody here in the world. And so guys, this brings us to the Proto-Evangelium. In chapter 3, verse 15, He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers and He will crush your head and you will strike His heel. This is the first gospel. God first tells the serpent that He was declaring war against Him. When Satan sinned against God in Isaiah 14, Satan declared war on God. But now here officially, God is declaring war on the serpent. And he said there's going to be conflict between the descendants of the serpent, those that are on the devil's team, and those that are on God's team, but ultimately against the one true descendant of the woman who is Jesus the Messiah. That's why the New King James translates the word offspring or descendant as her seed. Because we know that in the conception of human life, in the conception of human life, the woman provides the egg, not the seed. This seems to be an indication that Christ would be revealed as the Messiah through a virgin birth. That there would be no mistake about who the serpent crusher would be. And so he says to the serpent, you will strike the Messiah's heel. This is the strike that kills. This is the deadly strike. Satan will try his best to stop the Messiah from coming by persecuting God's people, the people of Israel. But also, when the Messiah did come, Satan tried to destroy him by moving the Jews and the Romans to kill him on a cross at Calvary. But the outcome of it is that the Messiah would crush the serpent's head. That's the death blow. 
This prophecy tells us that by killing the Messiah, the Messiah would destroy the devil. And this is the sacrificial work of Christ that brought the death blow against our enemy. And listen, it's also God's provision of dealing with our guilt and shame, our sin problem. Adam and Eve, they try to cover themselves with fig leaves. But God covered Adam and Eve with blood. It says the Lord God made garments of skin. That's animal skins. That means that God had to sacrifice animals. And my suspicion is, is that God made Adam and Eve watch him as he took animals and he slew it in front of them. So that people would understand this is what it costs to deal with the sin problem. And then God took those skins and covered their nakedness. This is the meaning of atonement. And guys, the same is true for all of us. Don't detach yourself from this story. This is our story. Guys, we are all sinners in need of a Savior. John Piper provided this definition of sin that I think is so good. Because we all fall under the category of this. John Piper said, My definition of sinning is, Sin is any feeling or thought or speech or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God over all other things. And the bottom of sin, the root of all sin is such a heart. A heart that prefers anything above God. A heart that does not treasure God over all other person and all other things. What is sin? Sin is the glory of God not honored. The holiness of God not reverenced. The greatness of God not admired. The power of God not praised. The truth of God not sought. The wisdom of God not esteemed. The beauty of God not treasured. The goodness of God not savored. The faithfulness of God not trusted. The promises of God not believed. The commandments of God not obeyed. The justice of God not respected. The wrath of God not feared. The grace of God not cherished. The presence of God not prized. The person of God not loved. Wow. When you hear it put that way, then we understand for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here's the deal. Christ is the Savior we all need. I'm not just talking about the non-Christian who's out there. But listen, for all of us who are Christians... We still struggle with sin. We still struggle with guilt. We still struggle with shame. And Christ, what He did for us on the cross, is a once and for all atoning act. That's why I like understanding and remembering the word atonement as at one moment. What Christ did for us at the cross by allowing Himself to be stricken by the serpent and then crushing the serpent 
The gospel is still for you and me today. And guys, if you are living in sin that God wants you to know, He provides the power for you to end that today. If you are still living in the guilt and the shame of sin, then God wants you to know that could be dealt with today. But don't hide it. Let God take what He's exposing and own up to it. Let Him cover you with His righteousness. Because the same Jesus who bore the thorns that was the outcome of a cursed world is the same Jesus who's coming again and He will come wearing many diadems as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And listen, we belong to Him. And that means... As we go out into this world, remember that He's not only the sinner's Savior, but man, let's go out knowing and believing He is the serpent crusher. Amen? So rather than living like victims in Christ, we choose to live like victors. Rather than fighting for victory in Christ, we fight from victory because greater is He who's in you than he that's in the world. Well, let's all stand together and let's pray. Father, I want to thank you today for just, again, giving us the opportunity to open the Bible and, and just to read and to listen and to think about these things today. And Father, as dark and as tragic as the story of the fall of humanity is, we want to thank You that number one, practically, You've taught us how not to be ignorant of Satan's devices against us, but more importantly, Lord, You remind us that Jesus is greater than the devil, and Jesus has rendered Him inoperative in our life, and that we could live and walk in the power of that liberated life. So I want to pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know Jesus, that today they would take full advantage of coming forward and and praying with someone to trust in Christ and to leave this place as someone who has been forgiven of their sins, freed from the dominion of the devil, and brought into relationship with God. For others that feel bound up by sin, Lord, today we pray that they would, by faith, Remember who they are in Jesus. Let you define their identity and not the devil of the world. And today, we pray that bondages would be broken. And Lord, if there's anyone here that in the process of battling sin is feeling guilt and shame, we pray that today that they would fully own up to their sins and Lord, experience your forgiveness and to be out in the open, clean and clear before you in the right with God. And so thank you for the mission church. Lord, bless them and make your face shine upon them. And Lord, give them your peace in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. Let's close out with this last song. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. 
To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.